Good morning, fellowship. It is so good to be with you. Come on in and let's stand and let's celebrate the character and the nature of our God. You know, He loves the sound of your voice. So let's make a statement as a family as we worship.
from the Apostle Paul what the great I am has done what he makes reality for all those who are in Christ he says this from Colossians 2 13 through 15 he says you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away then the God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins he canceled the record of the charges against us. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good? He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Only the king of all kings could do this. Let's celebrate him.
Good morning, everybody. You ready for some snow? Yeah. <laughs> no, yes. <laughs> Hearing it all around. Y'all need to make up your minds. Get together on this thing. It's good to see you all this morning. By the way, there is a community group leader training going on in the family center right now. And if you're supposed to be in there, you might want to dash on over, all right? It'll also be happening in the next hour. They're going to be overviewing the book of Daniel, which we're going to be studying next in community. We're going to get to that in a second. Welcome to all of you. It's great to have you with us here at Fellowship. And uh, if you're new here, welcome. It's great to have you worshiping with us, and we look forward to a good morning together. Uh, just want to remind you, uh, if, if you're new, to stop by the community group, uh, the community booth out in the foyer because we'd love to meet you, give you more information. Uh, if you'd like more information about community groups, you can target this QR code up here, get more information. Also, Discover is coming up. That's a pre-membership course. You'd like to go through that. Uh, it's, it's always a great time. You get to know a lot of new folks, and there's a newcomers gathering, so there's a lot of things going on right now that we would like for you to be a part of. So uh, stop at that community uh, info booth out there in the uh, foyer, and we would love to give you more information about that. Uh, we've got some baby bottles here with us this morning. I think I gave it to you, Russell, to, to hand to me. Uh, this is Loving Choices. And let me tell you something. At Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas, we support the sanctity and believe in the sanctity of human life from the womb to the tomb. We stand firmly on that, and we ask you to support Loving Choices during this time. We do this once a year, the baby bottle campaign. You can take this baby bottle, you can put change in it, you can put dollar bills in it, you can put $10 bills in it. And then at the end of it, before you turn it in on February the 12th, you can write a big check and put in it. Because it makes a difference. They're doing a fantastic job 
with young ladies who have unexpected pre- uh, pregnancies. Uh, they are very, very pro-life, but more than that, they are pro-love. And the young ladies that come in there, they take great care of them. So get your baby bottle today before you leave. I think they're at Booth C if you didn't get one when you walked in. And so, Russell, that's mine. Don't run off with it. All right? So take care of that. We have a special prayer request for you this morning. Heath Gilbert, uh, our new worship leader, he and his wife, Jessica, uh, have a new baby, Mirren Eve. And Mirren is struggling to survive. And uh, this morning is a big decision time for them uh, where the doctors are trying to decide if this is the time to take her off the ECMO machine. And uh, that oxygenates her tissues and so forth. But she's having struggling breathing uh, on her own. So I thought if we could, you know, just thinking about life and how precious that little baby is. If we could just talk to God on behalf of Marin Eve's life. Would you join me as we just have a time of silence and prayer for her? Ask for God's wisdom, for their doctors, for Heath and Jessica. Lord, we we pray that uh, you would help this little girl breathe. Help her breathe and just touch her. And uh, Lord, we... We don't presume your will, but you've told us to ask, seek, and knock, and that's what we're doing on Mirren's behalf. And Lord, in, in this light, we pray for the babies. We pray for loving choices and their mission, and their ministry, and all that they're doing. I ask you to bless them. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 1999, we built this building that we're in right now. now before that, we were across the way in the family center, and uh, we had our first service in that room in June of 1991. We almost tripled in size that first year, and uh, people just kept coming. And uh, then we, we built this building, and uh, what we really didn't take into account is how many more children would be coming. Uh, because this room filled up and then we had to build more buildings our children's center our student center all those buildings the training center we we had to build five buildings at one time and uh, it was it was quite a feat and so since 1999 we've had some debt much of that time we weren't paying interest because we were able to leverage our cash position in such a way that we didn't have to pay interest but we always had that debt then in 2011 we had grown. You've been here before when we had people around the walls, not able to find a seat. 2011, the Fayetteville folks said, hey, we would love to have a campus in Fayetteville. So we built that $17.5 million building, paid for it within five years. And then right after that, uh, we started filling up again. And uh, the folks in Bentonville said, we'd love to have a campus up here. And land was donated, and we were able to build a building. Went around visiting community groups. Lamar Steiger and I are community pastors. We would visit community groups and families and tell them we want to build Fellowship Bentonville. People would say, how much is it going to cost? We'd say, well, we just built Fayetteville. It cost us about $17.5 million. We paid for it in five years, so that's all we really have to go on at this point. 
Little did we know how much building costs were going to rise. And that building cost us $29,877,504. And, uh, and a few cents. And so it, it was pretty expensive to build that. We came to December and we lacked about $3.2 painted off by our goal. I remember one day my wife asked me, you think we're going to get it done? And I said, I really don't think so. Uh, it's just a lot of money in tough economic times. Uh, but I can report to you today that everything is paid in full. So the scripture on the screen behind me, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to you. Your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. And we don't pat ourselves on the back. We, we thank God for working in and through his people and their generosity to get this done. And so I want to say thank you to all of you for your, for your dedication. Over the past 10 years, you've raised over $50 million to build these new campuses to make more room for more people. And during that same time, over that 10 years, you gave $160 million to just keep the lights on around here. So thank God for all of you and your generosity and listening to the Lord. One more little thing of business. If you were giving recurring gifts to Bentonville, you don't have to do that anymore. It's paid off, and so you can go into your account and just uh, uh, turn, turn that off where you were giving to Bentonville, or you can transfer that over to our general fund. Because to be honest, during these times, we've had a tough time meeting our budget. Uh, and we were even looking at the spring and thinking we might have to cancel mission trips and things like that. But, but you were generous during the month of December. And, uh, but if you're not missing that money, just give it to the Lord because you cannot outgive Him. And so would you join me in praying and let's just be grateful to God. The first time since 1999 that we've had zero debt. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Not to us, O oh Lord. Not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. O oh Lord, we are forever grateful for everything that you've done in this place. And we know, Lord, that we're just getting started, that there are new horizons, there are new things that you have for us to do. This is not the time to sit so sour. This is the time to move forward. To move forward to accomplish new things so that other people might come to know you. That they might experience what we have in this place. But Lord, we give you all the glory again. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and celebrate together. I will not fear the war. 
You may be seated. Do we trust the sovereign hand of God in our lives? It's a question we're going to be pondering today, exploring the great care that he has over us. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I'd like for you to read with me this morning. Uh, Now, I've added the bullet points. That's not C.S., okay? But it makes it easier to understand. I want you to get this because it sets the tone for what we're going to be talking about as we study four chapters in Esther today. We'll be out around noon, okay? (laughs) But he writes, It is always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry. It's alive. And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceed no further with Christianity. I love his honesty. An impersonal God? Well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads. Better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap. Best of all. But God himself alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at infinite speed. The hunter, king, husband. That is quite another matter. Don't write God off as some aloof cosmic deity who doesn't care about you. Don't write him off as some impersonal God, subjective, a figment of our imagination, a formless life force that we can just tap into when we need him. No, he's much more than that. He is the sovereign God of the ages, watching over us, involved, caring, correcting. He knows your name. Jesus said he knows the number of hairs on your head. That's our God. And we should live in reverent fear because the sovereign hand of God watches over us, ever present. And so this morning, we're going to explore from the book of Esther the sovereignty of God and the necessity of our obedience to him. Now, stay with me for a moment because I want to explore an underlying puzzle in the book of Esther. So let me begin with a question. Do we do everything the Bible tells us to do? Don't raise your hand. Do we do everything the Bible tells us to do? Do we follow explicitly the the precepts and the commands and the principles of Scripture? All I got was a sneeze out of that. (laughs) Bless you. Well, if you're confused by that, what about coveting? Ever covet? I used to work with a guy back in the late 70s and 80s, and, and we, we built fences. And uh, we were poor as church mice, 
drove all around Conway, Arkansas, and central Arkansas, building fences. We had this old black Ford truck, all, all we could afford, and, and uh, it didn't even have a gear shift. It was a standard, but you had to jam a nail in it to shift the gears, you know. And, I mean, we were really, really poor, but we built those fences, and uh, he, he's a state senator now. And, uh, but back in those days, it was really something. And he'd see a nice car coming down the road, and he'd say, oh, man. He said, look at that car. Wouldn't you like to have that? And I said, oh, yeah, that's nice. And he'd say, covet, covet. <laughs> see a nice house. Oh, man, wouldn't you like to live in something like that? And I'd say, oh, yeah, he's covet, covet. We're guilty of those little things, what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. He wrote a whole book about it and listed out all these respectable sins. And, and should we get to that plateau where we're th we think we're reaching sinlessness? Oh, no, 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 no. Jerry gives us a list. Let me read some of these things for you. Ungodliness. Respectable sin. Ingratitude. Anger. Discontentment, pride, selfishness, gluttony. Anyone getting uncomfortable? Impatience, irritability, judgmentalism, sins of the tongue, profanity, gossip, jealousy, slander, lack of self-control, envy, and the list goes on. Respectable sins, he says. Why? Why do we justify them? Well, they're not in the big three, right? Murder, adultery, stealing. They're not those. These are, these are smaller sins, and we tend to classify our sins. But the real fact of it is it's not the classification of sins. It's the fact that we are all sinners. It's sin. We are born sinners. And it's only the blood of Jesus Christ that can cleanse us from our sins. But he calls us, he woos us to enter that process of sanctification where we become more like him, where he's pulling at the cord. He moves at infinite speed, that hunter king in your life, drawing you closer to himself. We identify with those respectable sins, but we shouldn't write them off as, oh, that's just the way I am. Because remember what Jesus said on the night before he was crucified? If you love me, what? Keep my commands. Do what I say. Follow me. Now, I would suggest that Esther and Mordecai were guilty of compromised obedience. Wait, they're in the Bible. They were guilty of compromised obedience, getting caught up or lost in cultural drift. It's, it's where one sins, possibly unintentionally not realizing the significance of their action. Now, we could get into willful disobedience where someone says, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. You really put yourself in a bad place with God when you do that. It's like standing up to him and saying, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it because I want to. But compromised obedience is much more subtle than that. Getting caught up in, in cultural drift. It, it's so subtle that it's almost imperceptible. 
You know, here at Fellowship as a church, we're careful to, to monitor whether we're getting caught up in mission drift, where you lose sight of your mission and you stop making decisions on the moorings of Scripture and, and you start to make decisions based on what we think. And we see a lot of churches in our nation today who've made that mistake. And now they don't know who they are. For so long, they've made decisions on what they think or what the culture thinks or, or becoming acceptable to the culture. And they stopped making decisions based on the moorings of Scripture that never, ever changes. They're falling apart. We need to base our decisions on what the scripture says is right, not what we think is right. So what was the problem with Esther and Mordecai? Well, let me answer that question by asking a question. Why were the Jews still in Persia? Why were they in Persia? They weren't supposed to be there. They were supposed to have gone back home to Judah. After the exile, they were, supposed, they were supposed to return to the land of Palestine, to their home, and, and rebuild the temple and, and, and initiate the sacrificial system of worship. Because you remember, for a Jew in that day, the law said that you had to worship in Jerusalem, that you had to worship at the temple, and there were minute regulations on the time and the place and the way that you were to worship. And after that 70-year exile, they were supposed to go home. In that day, to be separated from the temple was to be separated from God. Well, that was part of their punishment. But when the 70 years was up, many Israelites decided to stay in Babylon. They didn't go back home. They should have. Listen to Isaiah and Jeremiah and what they wrote as they prophesied about the exile. Isaiah 48, 20. Leave Babylon. Flee from the Babylonians. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Jeremiah 58. Flee out of Babylon. Leave the land of the Babylonians and be like goats to lead the flock. Jeremiah 51, 6. Flee from Babylon. Run for your lives. Do not be destroyed because of her sins. It is time for the Lord's vengeance. He will repay her what she deserves. And pay close attention to this one. Jeremiah 29.10. This is what the Lord says. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. So they could worship, so that they could be in relationship with him. John Walvard wrote this. I've taken some excerpts about his take on Esther and Mordecai. He says, Esther and Mordecai had not returned to the land and did not seem interested in complying with the prophetic command to return. He goes on to say, the law is never mentioned in the book, nor are sacrifices or offerings referred to. Prayer is never mentioned in the book, though fasting is. This fits the view that the Jewish people residing in the Persian Empire were not following God's will. They were shunning their responsibility to return to Palestine and become involved in temple worship. 
And he concludes, both Esther and Mordecai seem to have lacked spiritual awareness, except in their assurance that God would protect his people. You see, we've, we've got such a history of seeing the sovereignty of God over his people. After the Exodus, they wandered in the wilderness. Then God let them enter the land of Palestine. That would be their home that he promised to Abraham. And then we went through the period of the judges. And then they said, we want a king. And then the period of kings. And we had Saul, David, and Solomon. And then his sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. They split the kingdom over taxes. And, and, and then we had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. We had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And they disobeyed God. They disobeyed him and the prophets came and the prophets said, don't do that, don't do that. There's going to be judgment. Turn away, turn away, obey God. And they wouldn't do it. And so God brought the judgment. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and took them away and then brought them back into the land. And in 586 B.C., the last step of three incursions came when they destroyed Jerusalem and carried the people of Judah off to Babylon. And that's where they would remain for 70 years. And in 538 B.C., Cyrus made, after the Persians had conquered the Babylonians, Cyrus made the decree, you can go back and worship your God in Israel. But many of them had become comfortable in Babylon. Hey, it's not so bad here. Over that 70 years, they had lost sight through cultural drift of what they were supposed to be doing. Why was it so comfortable? Everybody else is doing it. They didn't follow what Ezra, Nehemiah, and so many others had done. It was a respectable sin. Unintentional. It's happening to us today, isn't it? We're following the norms of culture getting away from what God would have us do. We're like the frog in the kettle. And we're accepting things as believers in Jesus Christ that we shouldn't accept. And we're saying it's okay. It's called compromised obedience. We're led away. There's something significant about to happen in the book of Esther, though. You read about it in chapter 4 when Mordecai said to Esther, for such a time as this. And that young lady, that young lady took a stand and made a difference. Let's get a summary of these four chapters from the Bible Project. Watch this. Now, in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. 
It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep, and he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading, and he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution, and the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that first of all, she's Jewish, and second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. That's how you cover four chapters in 30 minutes. I want to take a moment to look at each of these key characters in this story because you get the story, you're familiar with it. Xerxes, he was indecisive, he was idolatrous, and he was arrogant. Haman, evil, egotistical, racist. Mordecai, he was generous and good, trustworthy. Esther, she was beautiful, she was brave, she was courageous. Let's look at Xerxes for just a moment. The royal king was sitting on his royal throne. You know, I, I really struggle with monarchy. Uh, there is one true king, and that is King Jesus. Amen? Amen? And so anybody who's a king on this earth is a perceived king. It's something that we have made up. Kings put their pants on one leg at a time, just like all the rest of us. And so we need to realize that there's only one that we bow to, and that is King Jesus. But Mordecai, he, he was the king, kissed the ring. He was the man. He ruled a kingdom that stretched from India to Greece and, and as far south as northern Africa. All of Egypt, northern Africa, that was his kingdom. So he was really important in the eyes of those people. Phrases in there like... Esther won favor in his sight, or if it pleased the king, that if he didn't extend his royal scepter, then you were really in trouble. So if, if you didn't do what the king wanted you to do, you were really in a bad way. But we see his humanness when the king, after when he couldn't sleep, like a four-year-old, he has someone come in and read to him. And just by coincidence, right? It happens to be the section where Mordecai had saved his life. No. It's the sovereignty of God caring for his people. 
He read that story and he says, wait, have we done anything to honor Mordecai? And it just happens to be on the day before that great banquet. So he calls Haman in, the one who wants to murder all the Jews, and says, we need to put him on a royal horse and lead him through the city. And guess who got to do that? Haman. Oh, how humiliating that must have been for him. Every king on earth needs to be reminded that in the end, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every king on earth needs to be reminded when this game is over that all the kings in the pawns get put back in the same box. And if ever you're disturbed, remember Proverbs 21.1, which says, no, 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 we're going to need to go back one slide there. Yeah, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Remember that when you get disturbed by an election. The king's heart, regardless of who it is, what party it is, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. God is always in control. He's never taken by surprise. Haman. Haman was evil, egotistical, racist. He reminded his friends of the splendor of all of his riches. He told them how the king had honored him and given him promotions. He boasted how he had risen above everybody else. He gloated that he and he alone had been given an invitation to this special feast. It's being held by Queen Esther. Little did he know that would be his downfall. He was totally enamored with the social aspects of life. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't live to get your name and picture in the, it, we used to say newspaper, but now I guess it's a magazine. Don't live for that moment. Don't live to drop names. Don't, don't, don't pursue that. Because it doesn't do anything for you eternally. Live for the king, and if you're honored for it, then, then great. But don't pursue it. See, Haman couldn't see that he couldn't be truly happy without all that. And he didn't think he could be truly happy as long as that Jew, Mordecai, was alive. So he took the foolish advice of his wife and his friends and had a 75-foot pole built to impale Mordecai. And little did he know that he would be the one impaled on that pole. But because the time, by the time he figured it all out, it was too late to correct his mistakes. The king's guards were at the door to take him to the banquet. He hated the Jews because he was a Canaanite. He was a Canaanite. They occupied the land that God had promised to the Jews. If you want to know more about the Canaanites and how depraved they were and why God did not want his people to mix with them, go to Leviticus chapter 18. And Leviticus chapter 18 will tell you what the Canaanites practiced and how they lived. You'll understand. But he hated Mordecai because he was a Jew. And it reminds me that there is no place for racism in the Christian life. Regardless of your background, regardless of where you've come from, there is no 
place for racism. I agree with Frederick Douglass who said he wondered if he and the slaveholders were reading the same Bible. We should see every man, woman, and child through God's eyes. Through God's eyes. So let's rid ourselves of that. I think of Numbers 32, 23. When I think of Haman, something that I used to hear from my mother, be sure your sin will find you out. How many of you had a parent say that to you? Yeah. Be sure your sin will find you out. And sure enough, sure enough. Mordecai, he was generous and good. He, he was trustworthy. Even though he fell victim to cultural drift and compromised obedience, it seems that he was a man of character. Because he sat at the king's gate, he was honored among that people. He had a position that was respected, except by Haman. He was a good caretaker of Esther. When her parents died, he took her in and he raised this young woman who seemed to be a fine lady. I thought this week as I read that, I respect so many of you who are foster parents. On the Ride Home podcast, I did an interview a while back with a couple of agencies who help people become foster parents, who help people adopt children who don't have parents. And I respect you so much, those of you who've done that, taken children in difficult circumstances and brought them into your homes. They don't know what a gift that is for them. He was a steady plotter. Proverbs 21.5 tells us that steady plotting brings prosperity. Mordecai just kept going. He learned to work within the system. In the end, he gave great advice to Queen Esther, who was able to save their people. Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and the one who is wise saves lives. And that's Mordecai. Esther, she was beautiful, she was brave, and she was courageous. Imagine the pressure this young lady was under. I can't imagine the pressure she was under. She was, she was young. And yet, she was being called to take on her shoulders the, 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 the care of her people. That if she went into the king and he was in a bad mood, she, she knew the story of Vashti and what had happened to Queen Vashti. She knew. She was, she was on a razor's edge. I admire her courage. But I do see cultural drift. You know, in the book of Daniel, when Daniel first got to Babylon, he wouldn't eat their food. It was a hundred years earlier. He wouldn't eat their food, but... Esther, because of cultural drift, she never brought that up. She ate their food. It was okay with her. She didn't think anything of it. She listened and obeyed Mordecai, who had raised her. Young people, if there are any young people in here, listen to your parents. Listen to them. Listen to those who have charge of your life for now. She put her own life at risk. And she knew she couldn't do it alone. When she was going into the king, she asked Mordecai, ask the people to fast for me. 
And I associate that possibly with prayer. Ask them to fast for me. She knew she couldn't do it alone. She needed their help. And this is is another plea for you, to be a part of a community group. Our elders determined long, long, long ago that just showing up on, on a Sunday morning, that's not enough. That we need community. We need to be in small groups. And so we worship together on the weekends, and then we come together in homes during the week. And that's where we, we nurture one another. We care for one another. We pray together. We grow together. And like Esther, we need one another. I would encourage you, if you've not been a part of a community group, do so. Go to the booth today and say, I want to be in a community group this year. Can you help me? I assure you that they will. Esther is a model for all of us in her bravery and her courage. Proverbs 2.8, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. God, in his sovereignty, was watching over Esther and his people, preserving his remnant. So the four main characters, Xerxes, Haman, Mordecai, Esther, there's something that we can learn from each of them as we read this story. And I encourage you this week to read these four chapters slowly, detail, marking things, because it is rich with values that you and I need to learn. I want you to note this verse at the end of chapter 8 in verse 17. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. It's the only place in the Old Testament that this Hebrew word is used for conversion to Judaism. You see, there's no doubt that they had heard the stories of Yahweh, the God of Daniel, of Yahweh, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And now again, they had seen the Lord work on behalf of the Jewish people. And many of them came to follow Yahweh because of that. So how could God bless the Jews in Persia who should have gone home to Judah when they were living in compromised obedience? How could God bless you and me when we get so comfortable with respectable sins? When he told us the night before his death, If you love me, obey my commands. And this is how. That's just how much he loves us. (laughs) That's just how much he loves us. That great hunter king who moves at infinite speed is not just a figment of our imagination. He's just just not some force in the universe that we can tap into whenever we need help. No. He is our sovereign God. And He knows you intimately. 
wherever you are in life, whatever mistakes you made, He's the God of starting over. Don't try to explain it. That's just who He is. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, before he died, said this. He said, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner. And that Christ is a great Savior. That's our God. And He's still alive and well and working in your heart. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we acknowledge that sometimes we forget that you're pulling at the end of that cord. That you're drawing us to yourself. Sometimes we want to run because our sin has made us feel so guilty and ashamed. But oh God, remind us that you are sovereign. And even though we can't understand it, you love us in ways that we can't imagine. And so we trust you, Lord. We trust you enough to reach out our hand to you and to come just as we are. What a sweet, sweet privilege you've given us to put our lives in your hands. Just allow you to carry us through. stand and sing this together.
says, I'm so glad. Come on. I'm so glad. trust in the sovereign hand of our God is going to get real when we leave this room. Amen. Because as Alex shared earlier, each one of us are facing different things in our lives. But as we face them, isn't it good to remember how loved we are? So as we trust by grace, as we leave this room, we leave as a people loved we leave as a people who are ambassadors of his love. And what a difference he can make through that kind of commitment to him. What a difference. If there's something going on in your life that you would love for our, the members of our prayer team to pray with you, we invite you to take advantage of that. They are here every week. They are passionate about praying for you. And they believe that God is able. And so I encourage you to take advantage of that. They, you can meet them over in that corner. But as you leave this place, go as a people that are trusting and go as a people that are highly loved. God bless you.